Good evening, everyone, and thank you from the bottom of our hearts for always coming, making the effort to come and join us in our services. And every time we gather as God's people, as we hear from Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24 to 25, it is actually to listen to God's word about His Son and how Jesus must change our life indeed as He offers us eternal life. The next two, three weeks leading up to Good Friday and Easter, you would know that all the messages would be about suffering and ultimately the death of the Lord Jesus. And so as we speak about death, I do not know what views you have of death. I do not know what experiences you have of death. And so sometimes when we ask parents with young children uh, whether they have pets, and a good number of parents with young children have pets, but after the death of a pet, usually they will say, never again. Because <laughs> the loss of the pet, it was um, a, grief, a grief to their, to their hearts. And so I've shared this before. We've had a series of pets in our family. And at one time, we had this rabbit. Do you remember the one? His name was called Mackie. And Mackie had a very bad habit. Whenever our dog came around to his cage, Mackie would pee in its face. And so there was a love-hate relationship between the two of them. So Mackie was never let out in the garden where the dog was. And we had a husky at that time. Uh, but one day, I was working at the dining table, preparing, I think, a message or a sermon, right, or some, something, a uh, document to, to write. I heard a click. And before I knew it, I saw Mackie run out of the, of the cage. And the next thing I saw was, I saw my husky run after Mackie. And the next scene was, Mackie was dead. <laughs> and so, though he was a little bit quirky, a little bit nasty, a little bit cranky as he got older and older, even though as Mackie passed away, we felt a certain loss and a certain grief. And I think our dog was very relieved. I do not know what views you have of death. I do not know what experiences you have of death. I say again and again, the pastoral team here, in a year, experiences about 50 to 60 funerals. And there's a constant joke among us, we might as well set up an office at Mandai Crematorium. Because we are there sometimes twice a week, three times a week. And sometimes as we conduct the funerals, of our church members, our brothers and sisters, relatives and loved ones, we realise it is their very first and only experience of death of a loved one. You never get used to death, no matter how many times you experience it. You can never professionalise grief. And we just started the year with 10, 12 funerals, and I caught myself saying, why did I cry there? I prayed not to cry. I pray not to cry because you're leading the service and when I break down, everybody else breaks down with me. If I can't finish the prayer, we can't finish this service which only has a half an hour gap. But I found myself still stuck, by, still struck by grief. So when you live life, you come across death. And there are many ways to die, as it were. Many ways we die. So first light comes on. Some of us die natural deaths. Old age, we pass on. Some of us die tragic deaths. 
And here in Singapore, if you're tuning into this, there was just a very sad account, a tragic account of five men early in the morning in one of our suburbs here or neighborhoods here, just race around at high speed with that car, lost control, smashed into a shop house, and they all died on the spot. Young men in the prime of their life, young men. And one of them had a girlfriend who ran to try and save him. How on earth could he, how on earth could he and his friends be so reckless about this? And then there are premature deaths. And again, here in Singapore, we have, and still are recovering, the tragic loss of Jethro Poir, who at 15 years old just went out to a school outing. And part of a school outing, they went for something with height and he slipped and he fell and that was the end of his young life. A good life. A young boy who loved God, whose 15 years is better than many of us, 60, 70 years. His 15 years of testifying to the Lord Jesus. In that sense, some of us die heroic deaths. When you come to the death of Jesus, you come to the most horrific death the human race has ever witnessed. You come to the most undeserved death that anyone in human history has ever died. You come to a heartbreaking, life-saving, game-changing. It's game-changing for the universe. It's game-changing for heavenly beings. It's game-changing for human beings. It's game-changing for every being. Because the death and resurrection of Jesus is the turning point, the fulcrum, the watershed that turns the destiny of either we stand for God or we stand against God. And so there are many deaths. But here is the death. Here's the reason for all our deaths. The reason for all our deaths, Romans 6 verse 23 says this, For the wages of sin is death. But Jesus is the gift of eternal life that cancels death. When you read such a verse in God's Word, the Bible, which is eternal truth, it tells you that no matter how you view death, no matter how you experience death, death has a spiritual dimension to it. You do not simply die naturally. You do not simply die tragically. You do not die prematurely. We die because that is life outside God's presence, against God's will. And that happened in Genesis chapter 3, when Adam and Eve chose to be wise in their own eyes and say, we'll live life that way. And God says to you, if you ever eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, you will die. But Satan said to them, beginning with Satan speaking to Eve, you will not surely die. So what happens when we put A and B together? What happens when you put mother and mother-in-law together? What happens when you put China and and America together. When you put China and America together now, it's, it's tense. It's frosty with repercussions around the world. What happens when you put the holy God and stubborn sinners in the same sentence? What happens when you put the holy God and stubborn rebels like you and me together? This is what we get. When we line up the holy God and us as sinners, you have a huge barrier called sin that results in death, separation from the Holy God. 
You either look at it as a huge barrier or you look at it as an insurmountable, unfillable gap that I cannot cross over. That no matter how, many, how much good works you and me embark on, no matter how moral your life is, you can never cross over to the holy God and live a life that is totally acceptable to Him. Hold that thought in your mind. What happens when you put God, the holy God, and unholy people together? And when we try to answer that question, here is the one death, here is the one death that affects all death. So you're going to read now in the final chapters of Luke's Gospel, all the events that leads up to Jesus' death, which takes up one-third of all the three synoptic Gospels. Why should the death of Jesus take up so much space? Very important. Jesus dies, and I want you to ask yourself, as you sit here, right? whether you sit here in the evening or morning service, or whenever you tune into this, Jesus dies, I ask myself, as I ask you as a preacher under God, and please ask yourself, so what? And God wants you to answer that question. Jesus dies. So what? And so with that, we unravel this. The one death that affects all death in Luke's gospel, Jesus is headed towards Jerusalem. So the turning point in Luke's gospel, 24 chapters, but the turning point is Luke chapter 9, verse 51. And why is that the turning point? Because from that point onwards, Jesus, our Lord Jesus, sets his mind on going to Jerusalem. Have you ever set your mind to go to a place that you, you will die? You know you're going to die in that place. You know in that place you're going to be betrayed, you're going to be arrested, you're going to be falsely accused, and then you're going to be cruelly crucified. 9.51, Luke chapter 9, verse 51, is the turning point. And from this point onwards, as he enters Jerusalem, and that was recorded for us, Jerusalem and Jesus. And Jerusalem and Jesus, the key thing you need to understand, as he enters God's Messiah, enters God's city, God's Son enters God's city, what did you expect? A reception and welcome of him, but I say to you, the key verse that you need to understand, God's Messiah, God's King entered God's city, God's Son entered God's city, and the key thing is He wept. He wept over Jerusalem. And then you're going to find out at the heart of Jerusalem, why does He go to Jerusalem? When does He go to Jerusalem? At the height of the most important festival, the Passover. Did you notice the four things I put up? Everything is Jerusalem and Jesus, the Passover and Jesus, the cross and Jesus, and finally the resurrection and Jesus. Have you ever gone to a city, eh? let's say by God's grace, COVID-19 comes under control, right? This vaccination uh, thing has taken place in most parts of the world. You now have a vaccination passport. You can now travel. Let's say the first place you really want to go to when travel begins again, where do you want to go to? I think half of Singapore will go to Japan. <laughs> That's what I heard. You go to Japan and, and you go to Hokkaido in December, it's filled with Singaporeans. <laughs> Wherever you want to go, from Hokkaido in Japan 
to Vienna or Luxembourg, I don't think you will ever arrive there with this thought bubble. And what could be your thought bubble? And says, Hokkaido is all about me. Tokyo is all about me. Vienna will not find its true meaning without me. Luxembourg has just come to significance because I arrive. Can you see how delusional this is? If Jesus is a megalomaniac, that he's a liar, that everything finds its true significance in him. He arrives in Jerusalem and Jerusalem is about him. He celebrates this Passover and this Passover is about him. And what do we mean by that? Two words, I use the financial terms. He will divest it of the wrong meaning, the wrong significance of Jerusalem, and then he will invest it with the God meaning of the city of the Passover. And that's very important. Everything finds its fulcrum in the person and work of Jesus. So far from him being a liar, far from him being delusional and a megalomaniac, we need to understand all that is happening. Only he understands this. Everyone around him will think that he got it wrong and will crucify him because of this. And so we need to understand why Jesus wept. 1941. I do not know what has caused you to weep. Maybe you watch a K-drama. Maybe you watch a Hindi movie. Maybe you watch, I do not know what you watched. Right? If there's something you want to watch, watch Minari. It's a very good movie. I just watched it. About struggling Asian Americans right into the tapping into things. You know how hard it is to start as a migrant somewhere? From zero? That might bring a tear to your eyes. Some pain to your heart. Why Jesus wept over Jerusalem? And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it. Saying, would that you even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. What Jesus is saying, as God sent Messiah, the end-time Messiah for eternal kingship, the end-time Messiah for eternal kingship, the rightful rule over God's city, over God's people, over God's rule, over God's world. You know what Jesus is saying? He is God's final offer of peace. God's Messiah comes to God's city, Jerusalem, as we said two weeks ago. The city of peace rejects God's final and fullest offer of peace, which means beyond this point, there will be no more offer of peace for the city of God and the people of God. And we realise from chapter 19 Israel's stubborn spiritual blindness. She couldn't see that Jesus Messiah was God's final offer of peace. And so once we get that, friends, we can trace the storyline. We call it the passion of Christ, and passion just means the suffering of Christ culminating in his undeserved death on the cross. And so here is one way to unpack 71 verses 
And surely I'm not going to be able to do justice to this, but I'm going to hone in on, look, it's like a sandwich. The red words, Jesus' enemies plot his death, begins the chapter. The chapter ends with, see, you can plan many things, but the many plans may not come to fruition. But here in this chapter, they plot Jesus' death. And by the end of the chapter, they secure his death. He's en route to the trial, and from the trial, the sham trial, he's en route to the cross. Sandwiched in between are at least four events that are very important to understand the passion of Christ. Jesus and the Passover, Jesus and the disciples' mistaken idea of greatness, Jesus and Peter's denial, and Jesus and God and the prayer at the Garden of Gethsemane. That wrenching prayer that we will end our time with. And so we're going to spend most times with Jesus' enemies plotting and then understanding the Passover and then we'll take you right through to the end to the prayer and then how his death is now a certain thing. There are no more U-turns. He's not just in Jerusalem. He's now headed definitely to the cross. So the plot to kill Jesus. Now the Feast of Unleavened Bread drew near, which is called the Passover. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to put him to death. For they feared the people. So the popularity of Jesus, the depravity of the chief priests, depravity, popularity, depravity, popularity, it was his popularity that invoked and stirred the jealousy of the chief priests and the scribes. But it's a double thing. It was also Jesus' popularity that stopped them from carrying out the depravity of their hearts. Then Satan entered into Judas Iscariot, who was of the number of the twelve. We're going to spend some time exploring the three enemies against Satan in the first six verses. He went away and conferred with the chief priests and officers how he, Judas, might betray him, Jesus, to them. And they were saddened. <laughs> Please read the Bible carefully. If I read, and they were saddened, I'm a heretic. They were glad and agreed to give him money. So they consented, so he consented, and sought an opportunity to betray Jesus to them in the absence of a crowd. So insight into Jesus' enemies. First one, chief priests and scribes. In 1947, you read of them seeking to destroy him, the first mention of that. In 2018, they sought to arrest him, but Jesus was too popular, wrong time to arrest him. By 22 verse 2, they are seeking how to put him to death. Notice by 22 verse 2, it is well and truly an assassination plot. And here are the spiritual religious leaders of Israel. The root word translated in English for seeking, sought, seeking, is the Greek word, zetio. And zetio, if you use it positively, Constantly seeking. Colossians chapter 3, verse 1. 
Paul will say this to the Colossian Christians and hence to us. Since then you have been raised with Christ. Seek the things that are above. So seek or pursuit is constantly think about this. When it's used positively, the durant season is coming. The durant season is coming. You constantly think of durant. Christmas is coming. Christmas is coming. Year end is coming. The bonus is coming. You constantly think of the bonus. So positively, Chinese New Year is coming. I'm going to see my loved ones again. I'm going to see my loved ones again. They're, they're all coming back. My loved ones from overseas for Christmas or Chinese New Year. I'm constantly thinking for a young child, right? Whether it's Christmas or Chinese New Year or his birthday, constantly thinking that's positively. But negatively, when it's pejorative, you're constantly premeditating and obsessed with getting rid of Jesus. And why? Why, do they, why are they constantly thinking of how to, to, to get rid of him? Because he stands in the way of their popularity. He stands in their way of their human applause. Jesus stands in the way. And so an insight into Jesus' enemies is an insight into the war in our hearts. And the war in your hearts, notice, was conscious, willful, ongoing sin. Three verses that tell you from 1947 to 20 verse 18 to 22 verse 2, it escalated, it escalated. Conscious, willful and ongoing. This ZTO is not a lapse into sin. You have been anger-free for the whole year. Then last week, it was a very bad time because you, you got a retrenchment letter. You also heard that your son or your daughter didn't do well in school, enough to go to university as they wanted to. And all things have just fallen apart. And in the midst of discussing this with your wife or your husband, you had a meltdown and you had an anger moment. But then by nightfall, you said, so sorry, I allowed fear to overcome me. But tomorrow will do better and have faith in Jesus. That's a once-off lapse into the sin of anger, the sin of fear. But ZTO for them was conscious, willful, ongoing. The perpetuation of sin will actually confirm that we are not God's people. And that's vitally important for us to know, my friends, an insight into the very nature of sin. This is the sin that will kill God's son. And why do we kill God? Why did they kill God's son? He was a very good neighbor. Jesus was a very good neighbor. He spoke the truth, he spoke with authority, and then he signposted his authority by demon exorcism and healing diseases. And he had no qualms doing this even on the Sabbath day. He was a good man. He was a pious man. Why kill a pious man? Beware, friends. The sin that is willing to kill God and willing to kill a good man of God. It is conscious. It is willful. It is ongoing. Then there's an insight into Satan. And the insight into Satan, our first introduction recorded by Luke, the doctor who goes to investigate this, an investigative journalist, a doctor turned investigative journalist. 
in chapter 4, verse 12, Jesus answered the devil, It is said, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. So I've said to you sometimes, right? Some people get a little bit tired here uh, in some ministries. What do you think are the most tiring ministries in a church? We call ourselves a local church. What do you think are some tiring ministries? I would hazard a guess. Tiring ministries, the ministry that you do every week. And what ministries do we do every week? Children's church. So you're going to pray for the children's church teachers who have been preparing lessons, Zooming, and it's quite tiring whether you it's online or on-site. Basic. Discipleship groups that for 45 weeks a year, we just keep going with teaching God's Word, keep going. This is tiring. Preaching and pastoring, counselling from weddings to funerals and everything in between, every broken relationship, every broken heart, this is tiring. And sometimes people say, Pastor Chris, I just want to take a break from ministry. I say, it's okay. You deserve that break. You should take a Sabbath break. But please don't take a break from Satan. Eh? I mean, don't take a break from spiritual warfare against Satan. Just because you need a break and you need a break of three months, six months, a year, you let down your guard. You think Satan sits around there and say, oh, he needs a break. Lah. I think Albert Ching needs a break. Just give him a break. Don't tempt him for this year. Raymond Yen needs a break. You think he will let down your, he will let go of you? No quarter will be spared in our spiritual warfare with Satan. You think Satan let Jesus go? You will read in between chapter 4 to chapter 22, where this is recorded. It's a face-to-face -face encounter. It's staring evil in the face because he's staring the evil one in the face. In between, Jesus goes about knocking down the kingdom of Satan. How? By exorcism and healing and the exorcism and healing and preaching the kingdom of God that has come through him as God's king. So at the heart of Jesus, of Satan's temptation of Jesus, is his repetition in those three temptations, if you are the Son of God. If you are the Son of God. Why don't you turn these stones into bread? If you are the Son of God, why don't you throw yourself down from the highest point in the temple? It was a temptation to misuse his sonship for his own gain and glory. It was a temptation for Jesus uh, tempting Jesus with his entitlement. But at every point in the three temptations, Jesus rejected Satan. And how? Did you notice? That Satan knows Scripture. Let me be clearer. Let, you, let yourself be clearer. Satan knows how to twist Scripture. A text out of context becomes a pretext for false teaching. If you are the Son of God, if you are Son of God, if you are Son, you can do this. All quotations from Deuteronomy in God's relationship with His people, and here comes the true Israelite, because God, uh, Israel was called God's sons and God's daughters, and so the true Israelite never abuses or, amuse, or misuses his sonship. He doesn't focus on his entitlement; he focuses on his responsibilities to glorify God, even if it costs him everything. And that's very important for us to understand of Satan, of how he works in Jesus' life, the Christ, 
and in the life of us, the church. So what does it mean you read this, and I hope your Bible studies didn't get bogged down with this, Satan entered Judas, and then you went for one hour of predestination, and you totally lost the plot. <laughs> all we know, you can read all the scholars, all we know is that he came under, Judas came under Satan's influence. That's the best interpretation. He stepped into Satan's zone and he was happy in Satan's zone. So a few things there from the first three verses, he was of the twelve. For Judas, Jesus now, as he heads towards Jerusalem, had totally failed his expectations of a powerful military messiah delivering Rome, delivering Israel from Roman occupation. He agreed to give him money. They agreed to give him money. Everyone has a price. Ask yourself as you're listening to this, at what point are you willing to sell out Jesus? I'm entitled to more is what he thought about. Judas thought about, I didn't sign up to follow Jesus only to have nothing. I didn't sign up to believe in Jesus only to end up with nothing. It is a mindset of entitlement. And so he sought an opportunity. Hey, it sounds, I mean, Judas sounds so similar, sounds like, sounds like the chief priest and the fellow and the scribes. And so for him, he was dealing with the depravity of his heart. Postponed sin is not the same as confessed sin. He didn't think that betraying Jesus was anything big or great or serious. And so he just went on. He postponed sin and he just wanted to look good while doing the ultimate evil. Insight into Satan, entered Judas, came under the devil's influence. So, ultimately, to betray him is to bear false witness. And where does that come from, the bottom of this? To bear false witness is the breaking of the Ten Commandments. This is what you must never do to neighbour. You bear false testimony because it is breaking the ultimate commandment. The love of God is expressed in love for neighbour. It is Judas' unlove. He unloves Jesus by demonizing him, that he is not who he is. He's not fulfilling my expectations. He's not giving me my entitlement. And so why should I follow him to the end? Think about this carefully, friends. The cosmic warfare that ultimately resulted in Jesus' suffering and death is caused by the war in our hearts that rejects God's peace. And the war in our hearts has this main dimensions, the DNA of war in our hearts against God and against others, always have these dimensions. So I do not know what war you have in your heart. This is what Satan will work on. And what will he work on? Fail expectations. The greater you fail my expectations, the greater I reject you. And that's why as Jesus failed their expectations, their national expectations of a powerful military messiah that would deliver them, they comprehensively rejected him. Think about this in all relationships. Why do marriages break down? Why do families break up? 
Why do marriages break down? Why do families break up? Because somewhere along the line, the spouse kept failing my, the other person's expectations. You fail my expectation, I reject you. You fail my expectation in this, I reject you. You fail my expectations of being happy in marriage. I'm going to thoroughly reject you because I expected to be happy, but you now brought unhappiness in my life. From morning to night, from Monday to Sunday, this is the end of the marriage. The more you fail each other, the more thorough the rejection. Beware our spirit of entitlement that I deserve more and I deserve better. When you and me walk around with the spirit of entitlement in anything, I deserve more and I deserve better. In life, in ministry, in relationships, you become a sitting duck totally vulnerable to Satan's temptations. Beware postponed sin versus confessed sin. Beware the externalizing of problems and demonizing others and ultimately thinking that it is God who has brought this unhappiness in my life. Just on marriage, right? God's ultimate purpose is not to bring you together for happiness. It's to bring you together for holiness. And holiness can include some seasons and experiences of unhappiness. But how many couples sit in front of counsellors and sit in front of pastors and say, I want a divorce because I'm so unhappy. The Bible never gives your quotient or quota of happiness or unhappiness as legit grounds for divorce. And that's, that's very important for us to realise. When we fail to understand this, we have fallen into the devil's traps. Fail expectation, spirit of entitlement, postpone versus confess sin, beware demonizing others. And because the war in our hearts, you could feel such venom towards someone you're supposed to love. You could feel such venom towards your father or your mother. You could feel such venom towards somebody who helped you in life. You could feel such poison and toxins towards someone you fell in love with and chose to marry. I told you, I almost start every marital counselling with, can you remember, just write down the top three things that you fell in love with each other for or with? And the couple will sit in front of us saying, top three things I fell in love with Mona for. Can't remember that. Can't remember the top three things you fell in love with. Can you remember the top three things you don't like of each other? Pastor Chris, here's my thesis. <laughs> it's a hundred pages long. I'm not kidding you. How many have we set to it through time? Hundreds. I can't even remember. They say, one I can remember. She was beautiful. Then I tried to move beyond beautiful. What else? Oh, she was beautiful. She was. Past tense, no? <laughs> you didn't catch that, right? I'm waiting for the present tense. The present tense doesn't come. Either of external beauty or of internal beauty. Doesn't come. Doesn't come at all. Beware, friends. Fail expectations in relationships. Spirit entitlement, I deserve better than this kind of spouse, this kind of marriage. Postpone sin, 
versus confessing, I, I should be thankful. I should be thankful for all things. Thankful for life. Thankful for my father. Thankful for, for the breath. Thankful for health. Thankful for, for jobs. Thankful for COVID-19 being brought under control. Thankful for Singapore. Thankful. No, I'm not thankful. Why should I be thankful? Because I deserve better. Who says you deserve better? Then came the day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. So Jesus sent Peter and John saying, go prepare the Passover for us that we may eat it. They said to him, where will we have, where will you have us prepare it? And so we've taken a deep dive into the enemies of of Jesus, the chief priests and the scribes, Judas and Satan working on the war in their hearts. Now we come to Jesus and the preparation of the Passover. Before the actual celebration of the Passover, now what deep insights of Jesus? No longer the deep insights of his enemies. You see, if you're watching a movie or reading a book, the camera shifts. And the camera shifts now to the Lord Jesus. What insights do we have of him? As he sends his disciples, two of them, to go and prepare a place for the Passover. Jesus said to them, Behold, when you have entered the city, a man carrying a jar of water, which is totally unusual, I'm told, because it's mainly women who carry the jar of water, so you'll be able to pick him up. He stands up in the crowd. You follow him. You follow him to the house that he enters. And when they went and found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. Jews came from all over, diaspora Jews, dispersed Jews because of the exile. And as they come to Jerusalem to celebrate this, the population in Jerusalem goes up. There is not a place. So if you're a foreigner coming into Jerusalem, you're not a Jerusalemite, you're not a local, you're a Galilean like Jesus and his entourage. You must prepare. You must do Airbnb beforehand. You don't arrive and find any hotel available. There won't be any. So Jesus prepares. And very quickly to the get to the heart of this, the enemy's plot in 22 verse 1 to 6, and then Jesus' preparation, right? So Jesus is a pawn. Sorry, the, the wordings all went wrong, okay, uh, here. Jesus is a pawn and a victim on the left-hand side. He has no control over his fate in the first six verses. It's all about the chief priest and the scribe working together with Judas under Satan's influence and he's not God's Messiah at all. He's not God at all. But on the right-hand side, Jesus' preparation, he's the master of the big picture and master of the small details. Actually, we put that in so that you'll figure it out. (laughs) And so he has absolute control over his fate. Yes, he's God's suffering king. So that's why the two accounts are what we call, big English word, juxtaposed. It is put side by side with one another. And that's vitally important. In the first six verses, Jesus is totally out of control of his life. So when you go to the right-hand side, he's master of the big picture of salvation. He's also the micromanager. So years and years ago, when I started ministry, somebody 
gave me a book called Jesus CEO, <laughs> Chief Executive Officer. I'm still waiting for somebody to give me a book based on this verse, Jesus Micromanager. So is he CEO or micromanager? He does both. He's in charge of the big picture of salvation. He's in charge of the history from the Passover in the past to now in him. But he's also the micromanager of every detail. As he plans this Passover, nothing is left to chance. And in gospel ministry, there will always be big picture, small details, big picture, small details. And the two must never be disconnected. Did you realize that both God and Satan are thoroughly interested in the fate of Jesus? In the words of one commentator and scholar, did you realize that both heaven and hell are dependent upon the fate of Jesus? This is how important this man is. You will never walk around thinking that God and Satan is interested in me and my destiny. But here is Jesus, God's Messiah, and everything hangs on the Passover. So the Passover, and when the hour came, he reclined at table, apostles with him, and he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer, for I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. I do not want you to miss, if you were just reading this yourself and allowing God's Word to study you, not so much you study God's Word, allowing God's Word to study you. The heart of Bible study is not you studying God, it's God studying you. Please understand that. What might, you, what might God want you to take note of? That the keys to the kingdom of God is Jesus the servant king that we sang about in starting. It is he that will unlock the key to the kingdom of God. Please take note of that. And so we here have to summarize the Passover 22 verse 17. He took a cup and when he had given thanks, Jesus said, take this, divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. Repetition, kingdom of God, kingdom of God, kingdom of God. The king explains the kingdom and you will come to know the king and the kingdom when you understand the Passover. So are you ready? If up to this point you haven't been paying attention, I want you to wake up now. Turn to your neighbour and say, wake up now. Not because it's ending, but because Jesus' life is coming to an end. And Jesus' life comes to an end, your life begins. And you need to understand this. And what is it we need to understand? The next slide. The background is very important. Exodus chapter 12. And when your children say to you, what do you mean by this Passover? You shall say, it's the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover. For he passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt, and he struck down the Egyptians but spared our houses. And the people bowed their heads and worshipped. Same holy God, firstborn of Egypt, firstborn of Israel. Totally different destinies. Same holy God, firstborn of Egypt, all struck dead. Same holy God, firstborn of Israel, all spared. What's the difference? 
Passover lamb and his blood spared the people of God. The exodus, the first experience of being delivered from death, the first national experience of being delivered from death because God, though he is a God of law, he is also a God of mercy and grace and covenant love. And so we need to contrast the history of the Passover. Can you see this? Let me just read that for you. A normal Passover, I'm told, and the scholars have different things, and here is just one from a scholar. There's an opening prayer, and then they drank the first cup of four cups of wine. Then they ate a dish of herbs, bitter herbs. Then only at that point, they recounted the Passover story. Then they would sing Psalm uh, 113, sorry, 113. Then there will be prayer and they drank the second cup. Then prayer and they will eat the main course of roast lamb, unleavened bread and bitter herbs. And then come, will, will come a third round of prayer and they will drink the third cup and then they will sing Psalm 114 to 118. So please read those psalms. They are psalms ascends to worship God. And that's important for us to note. Jesus' exceptional Passover, why? Let's say there were a million people in Jerusalem at that time. 900, would all carry on with, let's go back to the previous one. We'll all carry on, the previous slide, in this way. But Jesus' exceptional celebration of the Passover would have this. He opened the Passover celebration by telling them that he would suffer. Then he's been longing to eat this Passover meal with them. And this would be the last supper with his beloved disciples. Then he looks forward to the future meal in the kingdom of God. Then he took the cup and we are not exactly clear, did he take the first or the second? But the most important thing to take note is when he divests and then invests it with the true meaning. He recounted the story of the Passover, but invested new meaning. This is my body, broken for you. In all the other Jewish homes, this would never be heard. It's totally radical. It's totally delusional. It's totally a wacko claim. This is my blood for you. This is my body for you. And was this the third cup of the new covenant? And he will not eat and drink of it, the fourth cup, until the kingdom of God, KOG. Why is this important? Because the Last Supper that the Lord Jesus commemorated, it was His body and His blood for us. At the heart of it is what we call the atonement. At the heart of it is what we call His sacrifice. It's a Him for us moment. If you know nothing about Christianity and the Gospel, it's a God for us moment. His humility for our pride, His peace for our warring hearts, his love for our love of God and of neighbour. 
his selflessness for our selfishness, his undeserved death for our rightly deserving death. That's what it means. We miss this, and we miss it by a million miles. Brothers and sisters in Christ, friends, we need to understand this afresh. So when was the last time you grasped deeply in your being, deeply in your heart, that Jesus and you, it is Him for you. Without Him standing as a sacrifice and a substitute, there will be no you and God. And so, Jesus, the Passover and prayer, we fast forward to verse 41. Now with that backdrop, you and me can understand why he prayed what he prayed and how he prayed what he prayed. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Jesus, not mine, but yours. Not mine, but yours. With his heavenly Father, with us, not yours, but me. Not yours, but me. What do you call this man? The ultimate self-forgetting, selfless man. How dare you reject him? How can you reject him? The ultimate him for us men. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven strengthening him. Which means that left to himself, and being in agony, he prayed more earnestly and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. We must pull it all together, brothers and sisters. We asked the question in asking, in, in starting, what happens when we put God and us together? The wages of sin is death. When you put the holy God and stubborn sinners together, we get in between God and us our sin and our rightful death. But God, in His saving purposes, He puts Jesus as the go-between. How dare you and I not need Jesus and love Jesus from moment to moment, from day to day, from week to week, from season to season? How dare you not fall in love with Him even more in Good Friday, Easter 2021? more than you did in Good Friday, Easter 2020. How dare you go cold or stagnate in your worship and devotion of Jesus? How dare you and I need Jesus less, worship Jesus less, depend on Him less as you grow older in life? Can't be, friends. It just can't be. It cannot be. And so we said, if ever you want to do anything, you must stare death in the face. And some deaths are horrendous. I do not know. This was a horrendous death in Singapore where Gayatiri Murugayan pleaded to 28 charges including culpable murder where she bullied her Myanmar domestic helper, Miss Piang Nya Don, to death. The abuse began in October 2015 and carried on for 12 months and she was treated inhumanely 
forcing her to shower and relieve herself with the toilet door open. From this point onwards, I want to say to you, because we're talking about death, leading to the most horrific death of Jesus, the next two examples are going to be quite bad. But we have to stare death in the face. And every day, Gayatri, rain blows and kicks on Miss Piang, pull her from the ground by the hair, burn her with a heated iron, choked her or hit her with objects like a plastic bottle or metal later. Gayatri also starved Miss Piang until she became emaciated. Miss Piang was forced to eat sliced bread soaked in water, cold food straight from the refrigerator, or just rise as night lost 38% of her body weight and weighed just 24 kgs at the time of her death. We've encountered eating disorders, of course, in ministry. And I thought the crunch weight for eating disorders was 35 kgs until I read this. I almost couldn't finish reading this the first time it appeared in the media because it churned my stomach so much. I've read a lot of horrific things in my years. So have you. But this is horrific. And Gayatri's abuse grew worse and worse day by day. And Miss Tiang was tied to the window grill at night and while she slept on the floor in the last 12 days of her life. I just read this on the CNN, on CNN. It's about a genocide unfolding in Sudan. The genocide unfolding in Sudan is against the Trigayans, a Trigayan tribe, T-I-G-R-Y-G-R-A-Y-A-N. And... Women are gang-raped, drugged and held hostage according to medical records and testimonies from survivors who shared with CNN. Most evidence sexual violence being used as a deliberate weapon of war in emerging Ethiopia's, uh, Ethiopia's Tigray region. Sorry. In one case, a woman's private parts were stuffed with stones and nails and plastic according to a video seen by CNN and testimony from one of the doctors. You still want me to carry on? that you and me, whether in our domestic scene or global scenes, are very capable of man's inhumanity to man. But I want to say to you, as I preach the gospel, that none of those things compare with what we did to Jesus when he was murdered on the cross. And you still don't think your sin of being unloving towards God and neighbor, your sin of entitlement, your sin of demonizing others is a grievous sin. That puts you and me at great peril, my friends. I've deliberately slowed this down so that you would weigh every word that's coming across and every word that is coming across. So Jesus dies, so what? So we said, keep this acronym in your head. Confess your sin in any shape and form, in thought, word and deed. Repent of sin of thought, word and deed in any shape and form. Day in, day out. That's at the heart of the Lord's prayer, isn't it? Forgive those who trespass against us. Forgive us our sins. And then yield and surrender to Jesus more and more. So Jesus dies, so what? 
This is the Lent season. Lent is, you have to put into practice what it means to die to self. And I cracked the joke because Mona shared with me that for some young people, part of experiencing Lent is, I die to bubble tea. That's, for you, if you're addicted to a bubble tea, that's a huge thing to die to. I don't want to trivialize that. How about I die to my gadget? If you don't die to a gadget, this gadget will kill you. I promise you that. This gadget will kill every dinner conversation. It will kill a lunch conversation. If you impose this, right? We, we had experienced this. Although while on this year, we went for a lunch. Every church camp, right? We'll host a speaker to a lunch. And then Mr. and Mrs. Chin, right, who hosts us to that lunch, we went to a restaurant. And we sat down in a restaurant in Kuala Lumpur. And it had a phone stack. All phones have to be put in the middle of the table. Okay? First one who touches the phone pays the bill. Well, very good thing, don't you think? Why don't you impose that in the Cha family? It'll be called World War III. Why don't you impose that in the Lim family? Whatever family, just impose a phone stack. For the next one hour, as we go out to the Sunday meal, as this family, nobody touches their phone. I don't hate anybody. I just hate my father for such a rule. And who gave it to him? Pastor Chris. No. I'm just quoting an example of a KL restaurant. You don't hate God? I'm not capable of hating God. I'm not capable of hating anyone. Please don't underestimate your capability to hate. It's very deep. It's very grievous. It sent Jesus to the grave. So do you need to fast from your pride in any shape or form? Do you need to fast from the war in your heart in any shape and form? No more petty quarrels, no more. Enough, enough, enough. Do you need to fast from your unlove in thought and word and deed in any relationship? Or you just want to roll on to another year of this? Do you need to fast from your selfishness that is killing people off? Which idol? Which addiction, friends? With that, my friends, I pray we are about two weeks before the whole English Presbytery descends here because we are hosts to the Easter Convention. Wednesday, Thursday, Good Friday, then Easter Sunday. But we are not to remember this once a year. The sign-up, I'm told, by the Easter Convention Committee is up to this moment, uh, Wednesday night, only half. Thursday night, only half. Good Friday, almost full. I was cracking a joke. Hey, only 200 people on site here, no? 7,000 members in the English Presbyterian Church, right? And less than 100 are willing to turn up. Something gone wrong, right? So ARPC members, can you please do something about this? Before I and the only one sitting with the Methodist Bishop, who is the speaker, and holding his hand, says, so sorry, we Presbyterians believe in giving people a chance. And that's why it's mainly empty. I don't want to make light of this. The reason you turn up here is because I need your encouragement to keep preaching the gospel. You turn up for the other person. I turn up for you. You turn up for me. You know that? Some days my spirit is so low, I don't know where to go. That's like Charles Spurgeon sitting watching the Thames go down because the river Thames. You know why? Sometimes his spirit is so high, sometimes he says he suffered depression. 
we arrive here wanting to hear the glorious gospel. But the glorious gospel has a dark side to it. It is bad news before good news. Hear that. Confess, repent, and need the Lord Jesus now and forevermore. Let's stand. We're going to pray. We're going to sing a wonderful song that takes us into the very heart of this called Jerusalem. As we sing that song and meditate on the lyrics, may God's Spirit work in our hearts to behold the humility and then consequently the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. We bow before you, hearing afresh the bad news of our sin, the bad news of our death. Whatever views and what experience we have of death, the wages of sin is death. It's a spiritual problem. And we know that we have no way out of this apart from your mercy and your grace and your covenant love for us, Lord Jesus. So we want to stand here thanking you, worshipping you, loving you even more. But there is nothing within our fallen natures that tends towards that. But there's everything within our new natures as we accept you as our Saviour, Lord and God that will cause us to love you more and more and to share you with our family and friends to the glory of God our Father. Amen.